Sit down if you want to. Right in the middle of what's going on. I'm in the middle of an interrogation. Take a seat, young Skywalker. The middle children of history, man. Middle of the day, Alfred? Please, take a seat there. Right now, I'm in the middle of nowhere. Stop the middle of the base hit! Meeting in the middle. Fight, fight. They fought for the freedom of middle. 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 The middle of the middle of the middle. The middle of a war. Freaking ridiculous. Why don't we have a seat to talk about? No, not the middle seat. Tsakta stars Eldim Tseto It Rof Su Dionjo. That's backwards for join us for the latest Middle Seeds podcast, the best seat in the house for all things entertainment. I, I didn't look at you guys. Did you guys make a face when I did that? <laughs> I, I was like, are we having a stroke live on recording? What's going on? <laughs> I, I think it sounds like I'm speaking in tongues personally. Well, I'll play it backwards for the audience at the end of this podcast and they can find out for themselves if it sounds any good. <laughs> I did a little practicing, but... I, I freak myself out when I do it. I don't like it. <laughs> Andrew's officially uh, in-house Slytherin. <laughs> Was, wasn't I always there? Who knows? Uh, welcome to the Middle Seats Podcast. Like I said, the best seat of the house for all things movies and entertainment. I'm the protagonist tonight, Andrew Auger. Time is at a standstill when you look into his luscious, longing eyes, Mr. Nate Longarini. <laughs> Howdy do, everybody. Good to be with you. I can tell this is going to be a show. It is indeed going to be a show. That is a fact. Uh, and you keep looking at a watch when he's talking to you, Jake Hensler. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah, I don't have a comeback. That was good. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it it hits the same beats that I was hoping to hit, basically. Welcome to the Middle Seeds Podcast. If you're just joining us for the first time, we follow a three-act structure here, just like any good movie. The first act of our show is Lobby Talk, where we just talk about a topic that one of the members of the crew pitches. Then we have our news segment, and then we have a feature review. This week, it is of Christopher Nolan's Tenet. How we doing, gentlemen? Uh, Jake, you got some dental work done today. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, two different people kind of forced me to pick something uh, on TV. I normally, like, I haven't watched TV in a while at the dentist. And I was scrolling through, and the first two things I saw were Alien in 1917. And those didn't really feel like dentist movies. And the third one was Hereditary. And I was like, Jesus Christ, what else do we have on here? And then Chamber of Secrets popped up, so that, uh, that was fitting. Imagine, like, dozing off while you're under anesthesia and it's hereditary that you see is the last thing. Oh, Absolutely God. not. Yeah, I was like, I can't even believe Cable has the rights to this movie. Like, who's showing this and how much of it? That does bring up a good point, though. What is a good dentist movie? That's <laughs> something I've never thought of before. <laughs> a new genre. Pioneers here. <laughs> new lobby talk for sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right, somebody write that down because we forget a lot of things <laughs> when we don't write things down. Or That's just funny. listen back to this podcast. Anyway, speaking of lobby talk, let's head there. Let's all go to the lobby. You're in the lobby? What do you look like? I will blow up the block before you can make the lobby. Uh, so this is about the time where we usually would be doing our best of list. It's one of my favorite podcasts of the year. Uh, obviously, 2020 was different for many reasons, so we're... Uh, like all pro Pat McAfee just punting on that this year uh, because my two friends here have not seen enough movies, I think, to make that worthwhile. Plus, the Oscar window has been pushed back so we can talk about great movies further along into 2021. Uh, roughly, what would you guys say 2020 releases? I'm just curious. How many do you think you guys saw? Yeah, I just looked at my my letterbox, our little journal, if you will online of the movies that you see in 2020 and i think i'm less than 15 i would assume i'm about there too nate yeah i had a slow year as well i only got to 137 
I was just going to um, say, don't say only it. Only 137. <laughs> so I would have been Lord. equipped. But um, obviously, we're going to try something different here. We're going to do, as a lobby talk, we're going to talk about the best thing and the worst thing we saw in the calendar year 2020. Now, not this is not necessarily a movie that came out in 2020. It can be, if you would like. But since a lot of us were stuck, cooped up at home, watching older things, it's valuable to talk about some of the older things that we were able to get to that maybe we wouldn't have had the time to. In a way, I guess quarantine was a blessing. I, obviously, we did the whole Quarantine Rec podcast, and we gave you guys dozens of things you could watch. But let's see what Jake and Nate have to say. Jake, what was the best and worst thing you saw in the year 2020? Well, best is is going to be weird for me because I did a lot, a lot of rewatching in 2020. The best 2020 release was probably, I'm thinking of ending things. That was really good. I'm And I'm very excited to watch that again. There's a lot to digest and a lot to dissect. Andrew tells me I'm not allowed to include it because it was technically a 2019 release. But I'm also just, I want to throw a shout out to Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Incredible, incredible French foreign film. And then I rewatched like the Dark Knight trilogy, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, um, Shawshank, Saving Private Ryan, like, you know, The Departed. Like I rewatched basically most of my favorite movies. Um, <laughs> so that's best of. Worst of, as far as releases go, uh, we reviewed Doolittle. That was 2020. That should have been a, uh, you know, a forecast of what was to come for the rest of the year. Uh, TBT, that was like a year ago. Um, yeah, mm. I have a relatively complete list if you don't look at my 2020 releases. Boy, what a world where Doolittle was the biggest problem we had. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Weird that I miss it. Man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Portrait and a Lady of Fire is fine for this specific prompt. It's when we talk about it as a 2020 release that it's a problem. But yes, I saw it for that for the first time as well in um, the year 2020, and I loved it. I agree. It's such a poignant and powerful love story, Beautiful. unlike a lot of love stories that you would typically see. If I had gotten to it in 2019, it probably would have been number two or number one, even possibly, on wow. my 2019 list. It's a phenomenal movie. Yeah, definitely a top five. And I, th I think I'm thinking of ending things would actually make a good potential future podcast movie. That's something we'll have to discuss at a different time. But Charlie Kaufman is such an interesting filmmaker, and his movies are such ripe for conversation and uh, so much experimental stuff going on within them and the way that he tells his stories that I think there is a long-form discussion, potential future for that, but I love that movie as well. Yeah, I'd be down to do that. Nate, you got to watch it if you didn't yet. Sounds good to me. Nate, what are your choices? <laughs> All righty. So kind of like Jake, I definitely rewatched a lot of movies this year. I feel like just in the times we were in, it was good to go back to your comfort foods of movies, if you will. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and then also like share movies with other people that hadn't hadn't seen them before. Um, that was something I did a lot, especially in the summertime when things were things were spiking here in the city. But my favorite film that I watched this year was a catch up from 2017 back when I was getting hyped for Tenet and I wanted to catch up on my Robert Pattinson fix. I saw Good Time for the first time. And that was that was a lot of fun. It's very similar to Uncut Gems, where it's just a whole lot of what's going on, why are you doing this, oh my god, it gets worse, over and over and <laughs> over again. Very tense experience. Yeah. Um, um, but very well done. I, I definitely enjoyed that one. And then, like, two shout-outs for good movies from 2020 that I saw on very different spectrums. We never got to review Onward, um, which oh, definitely true. not the 
greatest Pixar of all time. I think that we all agree on that, but still very well done and did the classic Pixar thing of tugging your heartstrings and just being a good family-oriented movie about how family deals with itself. Um, on the complete flip side of that, a feel-bad movie, if you will, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always was a gut punch that I just caught up oh, on. Oh, I'm glad you got around to that. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um, if you're unfamiliar with it, it is just a very raw, real take about a young woman who decides to go through an abortion and the length that she goes through to try to get one. It's not a like very propaganda-sized movie. It's not trying to get you to think one way or the other. It's just trying to show you this is step A through Z and all the crazy things that an underage girl would have to go through to get it done. And it's it's eye-opening, especially for, I think, men who aren't as intricately involved with stuff like this. Yeah, such a compelling and quiet drama. Completely agree. That's one of the more under-the-radar ones that critics have been raving about, but I feel like a lot of audience members possibly didn't get to. I'm glad you shouted that out. That's a good choice. Onward is very sweet, very fun. Yeah, I liked Onward. It was good. It was fun, kind of like Nate was saying. Um, I did not mm-hmm. see, what is it, how is it called? Never, maybe, sometimes, Never, always? rarely, sometimes, always. Gotcha. I did not see that. I should see that, though. And then just rattling off the worst movies that I saw this year, there were two that I caught up on, if you will. Um, Saturday Night Fever had been a movie that uh, my parents' generation, my girlfriend's family had raved about for a long time, just like one of the all-time greats. I saw it, and oh my God, is it dated. Like (laughs) the way that that movie deals with sex and rape and everything is so cringy now. Um, I think it would be cringy then, but... Like, everybody just loves this movie for the soundtrack, and in the age where soundtracks and movies are the norm, the movie does not hold up. It is awful. <laughs> Nate, take us some shots. The movie that I um, that came out this year that we didn't really get a chance to talk about was Mulan. There are other movies that I saw in 2020 that were worse than this, but this was just another one of Disney's live-action adaptations that I did not care for in the slightest. Not a sleazy outhouse. I would still give it a damp lawn chair if we were to do a formal review on it. But nope, not for me. Yeah, I mean, we have hit that note over and over again on this podcast, the entirety of like the Disney live action remakes. I actually thought that this was one of the better ones. It might have led to a bit of an argument between us, uh, but I don't think it would have been a uh, irreparable end of friendship argument, if you know what I mean. Uh <laughs> because I probably I probably would have ended up defending it and then been like, yeah, it wasn't that awesome. You know, it was OK. Mm. Instead of like Lion King shot for shot remake, it tried to do something different. Just my opinion that something different didn't really work either. So what are you going to do? Try again, I suppose. Or just don't try again. <laughs> but they will. <laughs> yeah. Take their own advice and let it go. My God. Anyway, my turn. Um, there's a lot of movies I could shout out. I'm going to focus specifically on one 2020 movie that I found very electrifying and intense and unique. Uh, It's a movie called Promising Young Woman, uh, which has been getting a lot of buzz for its very tricky subject material. It's a black, black, black comedy uh, about a woman who gets revenge on men or basically shames men who are trying to take advantage of her. 
it's like a revenge exploitation movie. It finds a good balance of like comedy. It's very passionate. It's very angry at how assault engrosses everybody and specifically the people in a person who has been assaulted circle, how that kind of stigma never leaves them and how it's just a black mark on everybody's life. And it portrays that in a very unique way, specifically talking about how the traditional view of how movies like show sexual assaulters is often not how it goes. It often goes like the nice guys and the guys that say they're going to help you are the ones that are actually the most dangerous. It's a very cautious movie in that terms, and it's led by a terrific lead performance by Carrie Mulligan who I believe is going to be one of the front runners for Best Actress. I hope the director, Emerald Fennell, she's been an actress in a couple of things. This is her directorial debut, and it is a firecracker of a movie. Promising Young Woman, available now on VOD. It's like 20 bucks for rent, so I would understand if some of you waited. If there's any movie to spend 20 bucks on to rent, this is one of them. This is a terrific movie. I'm guessing neither of you have seen it. Nope. <laughs> Not yet. Have you heard of it? Yes. Yes. Okay, good. We're getting there. Uh, and then we'll transition to the worst thing I saw this year. Even before quarantine happened, 2020 was not off to a good start. The first two months of this year, or this past year, were among the least compelling first two months of a cinematic release slate that I've ever seen. There were a lot of, like, two out of tens. There would have been a, would have been a murderer's row of sleazy outhouse uh, <laughs> ratings. We kind of got bailed out of seeing more of that stuff by the pandemic. It's hard to say that the pandemic bailed anything out, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. The audience was robbed of terrible reviews. I rate fist-clenching reviews. <laughs> yeah, like five <laughs> movies that I saw in the first couple of months would have been in my bottom 150 all time. So it's like it was that, wow. that kind of run. And the worst of them all was something you can watch right at home, folks. It's called 365 Days. Oh, right. I had to watch that. Yeah, I, so it's the worst movie I saw this year. It's a bottom five movie I've ever seen in my life. It is the most disgraceful Fifty Shades of Grey, but for, like, people who were, like, on Parlor, like, that kind of, like, incel, disgusting shit. I, it's, it's so bad. Basically, it's about this guy who, he's, like, a gun runner or something like that. It's Italian. He takes this woman hostage, and he says, I'm going to hold you hostage. You have 365 days to fall in love with me. And if you don't, I'll let you go. What? Uh, so Stockholm and Syndrome. And she does. Yeah. Well, I mean, yes. No, not not to spoil it. Ugh. Yeah, it, it is. It is icky. <laughs> it's like Fifty Shades of Grey if the, if the person had no choice. It's disgusting. It's shot like a terrible cologne commercial. It has one of the worst endings I've ever seen. And this is something I wouldn't have gotten to probably if people weren't watching it during quarantine. Ugh. Give and take. 365 days. Don't ever, ever, ever subject yourself to what I subjected myself to, except Jake, who has to watch it. Yeah, for those unfamiliar, I have Andrew has criticized me for not watching enough bad movies, and he's not wrong. I just don't... That's not how I want to spend my time. But I, his logic is sound. <laughs> um, so I agreed to watch his worst, worst movie of every year. So I guess I'll be watching that pretty soon. I, I was discussing in my with myself giving you a mulligan because... The year has been tough on all, and I wouldn't have gotten. <laughs> I, I probably wouldn't have gotten to this if it weren't for the pandemic. Like this isn't like a major release or anything like that. But I just need someone else to see it. It's just so I have somebody to talk about it with. Yeah, uh, I guess I'll. I guess Glad I'll have to do that Glad it's on me, bro. Yeah. <laughs> anything else on this lobby talk? 
Yeah, I because I'm me, I have to mention I also rewatched Mad Max Fury Road for like the sixth or seventh time in my life. I just I just have to bring it up because I love that movie. I, <laughs> <laughs> and is it still good, Jake? Oh, it's it's incredible. It's it's unbelievable. There you go. Well, glad 2020 didn't break something. Yeah. Uh, well, this should be interesting. Let's move into news. And this just in, a Newsbreak special report. I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. We are here on The Middle Seeds very committed to following up on our big stories. And last time on the podcast, we talked about uh, the Warner Brothers HBO Max deal. And we kind of alluded to the fact that there is going to be some kind of repercussions and different uh, little loopholes and things that are going to happen based on the decision to send these movies day and date to HBO Max as well as to the theater. And one of the big things we highlighted was the whole fact that actors who sometimes get a portion of theater proceeds are going to probably be renegotiating deals. Uh, This was just an interesting Hollywood Reporter uh, report that came out a couple of weeks ago, basically talking about this upcoming one called The Little Things. Um, which stars Denzel Washington, Rami Malek, and Jared Leto. It's a crime thriller movie slated for the end of January that's coming out. Denzel Washington normally commands $20 million plus a back-end fee, but while we don't know how that's going to work now, THR, uh, that's what I call my friends at The Hollywood Reporter, guys, uh, says that there is a new proposal outlining a formula for how these actors will get paid. So Denzel, like I said, usually gets $20 million dollars, if an actor makes less than $4 million, they'll be paid an additional 25% of their salary when a movie is released as an advance against box office bonuses. If an actor makes $4 million or over, the advance jumps to 40% of their val- uh, salary. So basically, they're not tying it into how the movie performs anymore. They're tying it into basically giving everybody a flat rate. So these are the kind of negotiations that are going on. As I say this on my TV in the background and mute, I just got an HBO Max commercial with... Uh, LeBron James standing next to Bugs Bunny, which is always fun. Uh, Things that you love to see (laughs) on your television. But guys, what do we think of this as a possible solution? What do we think of how the HBO Max thing is going? I mean, there hasn't been any releases really since then, but we saw a little bit of a snippet of Godzilla Kong. There's a lot to talk about here. Yeah, totally. So we brought this up last time, and now we're at least getting some details into how Hollywood is going to handle this change. For all we know, the cost of producing a movie, if anything, has gone up. But at bare minimum, still costs the same. But if the proceeds and the revenues that these movies are making are less now, then you are going to have a lot of unhappy actors and a lot of unhappy agents dealing with all this. So in terms of normal supply and demand, I'm not sure what's going to end up giving here. Because the, mo- the money has to come from somewhere. So are studios just going to be going more and more in debt if they aren't making all this money back right away? It's an interesting thing to think about. I mean, they seem to be concerned but not concerned. They're, like, cutting their losses a little bit, don't you think? Like, it seems like mm-hmm. that they kind of planned out what they're going to lose and are just kind of basing their plans around let's not lose any more than that. But you're right. Is that sustainable? Again, I, I think – the hope is that none of this has to be sustainable because we're going to get back to at least a version of normal in the next two years, we hope. Uh, but yeah, I'd be, I'm very curious to see what big shot actors do like this because like Denzel Washington, if he's getting 20 million on the reg, 
if the studio just doesn't have that m- money up front anymore, it, does Denzel just end up rolling over and taking the hit and say, okay, I'll deal with five or ten this year and go from there? Or does he just hold out from doing movies for a while because it's not worth his time? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, Jake, would you would you take four million? Like, uh, that seems like a pretty like a layup question for you. There, I, I would I would take four thousand. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'd take four hundred. I want my stimulus check. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that was when I read this. That was one of the first things I thought of. Not so much actors like uh, like I read Anthony Mackie and uh, Sebastian Stan. I think get about two million per Marvel movie. So not actors like them, but guys like Mark Wahlberg, Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Denzel, maybe a Tom Hanks, like even Harrison Ford. These guys command a lot of money. What are they going to do with movies like this? You know, like The Rock, The Rock used to come out with like a couple movies a year. Studios can't afford to pay him that much money right now. Yeah. And when does it really become a thing where the actors see that the studios are struggling? Obviously, I'm I'm not going boo-hoo for the studios. Uh, The actors deserve to get paid their rates. But at a certain point, is it a bad PR move if the story in the, the Hollywood Reporter is Denzel Washington refuses to work with Warner Brothers because they can't pay him more than five million dollars? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Because these are the same people that put out that Imagine video and thought that they were doing good PR moves. Do they understand what a bad <laughs> PR move is and just kind of go with it, you know, and still attach themselves to these projects? Because it kind of looks like they're helping out. Mm-hmm. I think you're going to see a lot more old Hollywood take the backseat here. And I think you're going to see a lot more of your Tom Hollands that just need to keep riding the wave to stardom here. Like he's pretty much at a household name standpoint, but he has to keep going if he doesn't want to fizzle out. Right. And I think you have seen a lot of Tom Holland in the last three years, right? Since he, since he started. He's come out with a couple things recently. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's going to probably garner a little bit of Oscar buzz for this cherry movie. So he's trying to diversify. Yeah. I mean, Flood the market with your Florence Pugh's and your Tom Holland's and your, I don't know, like even your Carrie Mulligan's is another good option. Talking about promising young and, woman, uh, Anya Anya Taylor Joy came out with a couple things this year. Yep, and she's got she's more on the she got more in the pipeline too. Yeah, Anya Taylor Joy had a great year. Something interesting that I saw is um, I hadn't been really paying attention to Netflix during all this, and they had a a big promo spree this week, and I didn't realize that Leonardo DiCaprio was starring in a Netflix movie. Yeah, the next Adam McKay movie from the director of The Big Short and Vice. And yeah, that's got a big cast. Yeah. It, if Leo's making the moves to streaming, will the other big names of Hollywood go the same direction? It's another interesting question here because I wouldn't have thought that five years ago. Like Leo and most big other big Hollywood actors were avoiding Netflix unless they were getting a stupid amount of money. Yeah, well, that then that poses the question. But I, I, was, I was with you. I was surprised to see DiCaprio there because he's considered like that, you know, the top tier dramatic actor. He's not an action star or a comedy star. He's one of our more well-respected yeah. he guys. He only picks like one movie a year, if that. Yeah, he yeah. doesn't, that's Usually true. Usually even less, right? Before Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he hadn't worked in four years. Yeah, there's a lot of questions to be raised, but I say, I did it with Nate said. I think we're going to see a lot of young up-and-coming stars who are really hungry. Um, not to totally tangent, the UFC did uh, saw something similar. Your McGregor's and guys like that didn't fight as much this year. And there's one guy named Kevin Holland fought five times, and now he's basically a star. Like, I think you're going to see that in, in movies. You're going to see oh, these younger guys. Believe me, Jake, Nate and I know all about Kevin Holland, right? 100%. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's Tom Holland's brother, right? Yeah. Right? That's what I was saying, yeah. <laughs> They're not even – never mind. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Let's move on to movies that are actually being made right now. It's hard not to talk about things that are fundamentally changing the industry. And one of those things right now is things that are in production. How are they handling the pandemic? Uh, and the big set that, of course, uh, TMZ has their eyes on right now is uh, Mission Impossible 7. Uh, because they're making that right now. And uh, if you did not see a couple of weeks ago, uh, Tom Cruise, uh, what's a nice uh, way to say it? Lost it. <laughs> Basically flipped out at a bunch of crew members who were not wearing their masks uh, or were incorrectly social distancing. I don't think it was ever clear exactly what they were doing. Um, but mm. five crew members quit because of that, in my opinion. Good. If you were that incensed about following COVID protocols, then you probably shouldn't be on the set anyway. But obviously there has been a lot of eyes towards what's going on there. Tom Cruise is a producer on that movie. He wants to make sure that the movie doesn't get shut down. Uh, and that was a big part of his tirade. People were kind of saying that there were potentially robots on set of Mission Impossible 7 to guard <laughs> against COVID-19. That was the rumor. Uh, the rumor is that the cruise bots uh, could administer on-the-spot tests to staff and were intimidatingly, like, I don't know, scuttling around set uh, to <laughs> enforce COVID rules. <laughs> it's like you can't even say it without a straight face, and that's because it's not true. But the fact that it's gotten to this point, uh, and the fact that they had to issue a clarification that it's not true, uh, is pretty funny in its own right. I guess that's just a, it's just a good opening topic for how movies and TV are being made during this pandemic, the protocols and everything like that. Jake Hensler, I guess, what did you think of the tirade and what do you think of safety on sets as it goes right now? Uh, I, I think no safety is the best policy. Just Just get it done as fast as you can. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> right, um, yeah, way too fast. <laughs> yeah, um, very obviously, you know, COVID is a big deal. Insane amount of people have died. I believe every production has hired a COVID officer. I worked in the accounting department on a TV show for a few months. And when I came back for a couple months, they there was a COVID officer who every morning you had to check in, make sure you were, you were negative and take a bunch of tests, make sure you didn't travel anywhere. And uh, they were enforcing masks, like all kinds of stuff. And I heard that it's going to be the norm for every production until this passes. So I think that's great. That's even another way to, you know, get more jobs going, hire people to do that and make sure everybody's safe while, you know, getting movies out there, you know, getting people paid, creating jobs. I think it's all great. Um, and if they want to make it with robots too, might as well. <laughs> uh, Nate, do you think it's responsible to be making things right now? I think, I mean, that's a loaded question. That's a lot to just very, put on you. Very, very loaded. <laughs> you have 10 seconds. Go. So, yeah, Nate, do you think <laughs> thousands of people should lose their jobs? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I think the hardest part about all this is that a lot of movies are made in Hollywood, which is in California. And California, at the time of this recording, is not doing well COVID numbers at all. Hospitals are getting overwhelmed. Uh, the spread is very real over there, even with the vaccine coming out and being administered. It's still very, very dicey over there. So, yeah, absolutely. If if people aren't following COVID protocols, even if he's being an asshole about it, Tom Cruise, I think, had every reason to yell at those those staff members. Um, this is literally life and death. And life and death for both people's lives and the movie itself that can get shut down and ruin people's livelihoods. Uh, it's it's a big, big deal. Um, also, we don't know what he was doing on the set at the moment. I feel like those are very 
intense adrenaline filled set. So who knows? He could have been hanging off the side of a helicopter when he screamed at them, kind of like yeah. Jack Black and Tropic Thunder. Yeah. <laughs> this is also a guy who jumped on Oprah's couch about getting married. So like, yeah, he's kind of a nut. Right. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's put it lightly. Right. So, I mean, not even talking about Tom Cruise in general, just the whole idea that these productions are happening. It's a high risk, but I guess relatively high reward thing to be doing right now because of the risk, obviously, of COVID spread. Like Nate was saying in California, a lot of these productions are there. Yeah, like the the Batman production gets shut down every other week because of a COVID outbreak, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, Pattinson himself had COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to say, it's been it's shut down like, what, three, four times, maybe more? Yeah. And there was some kind of new rule, I think, that just passed a couple of days ago. I think it was the United Kingdom, uh, where now crew from the United States can't travel to there. So they're going to have to start hiring people within the United uh, United Kingdom to film these productions. So wow. other companies are, and other countries are taking precautions now, which is good. Uh, obviously, everybody has their own different way of handling COVID. Once you get the shoot done... You can do editing and all post-production stuff remotely. So that can be done completely safely. It's just the actual production to get it done, get it in the can, and keep the business cycling. Yeah. I still believe there's robots on set. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, I don't – I that wasn't convincing enough as, to not. As long as the robots are enforcing COVID procedures and not taking humans' jobs, I think we're in a good spot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. That's next. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Oh, man. Oh, I guess on a slightly happier note. Uh, yeah, depends on how you feel about it. That'll do it for our news segment. This is a good transition, I guess, because we were talking about one of the only movies to actually make it to theaters during all this. Let's talk about Tenet. All I have for you is a word. I need some idea of the threat we face. As I understand it, we're trying to prevent World War III. Time travel. No. Inversion. Whoa. Well, that from here hasn't happened yet. It's reversing the flow of time. Doesn't us being here now mean it never happened? Tenant is directed by Christopher Nolan. This is the first time we have ever reviewed a Christopher Nolan movie on the podcast. That's kind of exciting wow. for at least. Nate Lungarini, I think for both all of us, but especially wow. for Nate Lungarini. This is our first time going after Big Daddy Nolan. This yep. is exciting. I was about to call him Big Daddy wow. Nolan too, and I let you do it because I knew you were about to oh. do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm surprised. But yeah, going through his filmography. Wow, makes not sense. even a freeze frame review. That's crazy. Right. So going chronologically in uh Big Daddy Nolan's filmography, his last movie was Dunkirk, July of twenty seventeen. Uh, and this podcast launched in September of 2017, so two months after Dunkirk came out. It's been a long journey to get to this point, but we finally reached it under different circumstances that I think a lot of us thought we would be under. But Tenet is still a movie. It is a big, important movie. Like I said, directed by Christopher Nolan, written by Christopher Nolan. Uh, it stars John David Washington, Robert Pattinson, Elizabeth Debicki, Kenneth Branagh, Aaron Taylor Johnson, and Michael Caine, uh, a.k.a. Michael Caine. Uh, I am going to read what it says Tenet is about on IMDb, but (laughs) this is an absolute joke. Armed with one word, Tenet, and fighting for the survival of the entire world, a protagonist, played by John David Washington, journeys through a twilight world of international espionage on a mission that will unfold in something beyond real time. 
what the frick does that even mean? <laughs> I mean, that's, that sounds like a review right there. It was enough to get me hooked, man. I, yeah. I needed to see this movie as soon oh, yeah. as possible back in October. Yeah, I, I mean, so the movie came out in theaters in September. We all traversed into the great unknown uh, and took a trip to our local theaters to see the movie. It has been a few months, obviously, since then. It's been on demand since December. So we didn't feel a rush to review it right away. We wanted you guys to have a chance to see it, but it's obviously not something we can ignore. The simplest way to explain Tenet is that it has to do with time manipulation. Now, what that means, we are going to spend probably the next 10 to 15 minutes stepping on the charcoal fire, trying not to spoil the movie, what exactly that means. Expect this one to transport itself into spoilers pretty quickly. But having said that, there's probably still ways to cryptically talk about what we thought overall because there are a lot of differing reactions to this. It is very challenging. It's a very complex movie. Nate, I'm going to give you the option. Do you want to go first or last? First or last? I guess I'll go last. Okay. That means Jake Hensler, you're going first. That's all right. I'll, I'll try and keep it quick. Dunkirk, Interstellar, The Dark Knight Rises, The Dark Knight, The Prestige, Memento. What a list of movies. Where does Tenet rank among them for you, and what do you think of it as a standalone Nolan epic? Um, Yeah, I don't think it's any question Nolan's one of the best filmmakers working today. Tenet is definitely, without a doubt, it's not in my top six. Um, it's in his bottom half. But all things considered, I still enjoy it. It's two and a half hours long. It does not feel like two and a half hours. I think there's a lot of good, a lot of interesting stuff. The main issue is that it is unnecessarily complex to a point where I've seen it twice and it's just it's just not clear on a lot of things. Do I understand the overall story, overall what happened and the conclusion? Yes. Could I tell you everything that happened and why or even when or where? No, there's so many components to this movie. I would have rather him take an extra 15, 20 minutes to make it more clear and not worry about the time. But uh, overall, I did like it. I did enjoy it. I think it's a lot of fun. I think it's enjoyable. It's just, especially by the third act, it's just too much. There's too much going on to the point where your brain is like, can we pause this for a second? And like, I don't know, have somebody explain it a little bit. <laughs> At least that, that's been my experience. It's just a little overly complex and it's not thoroughly explained enough. Tenet is the first movie that I have ever seen where I have gone to see it, gone home, watched the like Tenet explained YouTube videos and somehow been more confused by the explained videos than I am by the actual movie. These explained videos all out here are basically just guessing what happened. <laughs> I, I agree. Like there are a lot of indie movies that are kind of like bendy and twisty in terms of science fiction. This is probably the biggest movie I've seen that has confused me. And I, I don't feel ashamed to say it because I feel like everybody feels that way. Having said that, besides the different plot mechanisms and the typical Nolan pretensionisms and the different character work and emotional problems that are there, I think this is an exhilarating experience. I really like this movie a lot. It is basically Christopher Nolan's Bond movie. Uh, it has that, but it has the sophistication of like a cult thriller mixed in with it. It is well acted. It has some exhilarating and inventive 
beautifully designed action sequences. It has one of the best scores I've heard in a long time by Ludwig Göransson, who, good God, talk about taking over all mediums. Ludwig Göransson is a composer who has done music for Black Panther. He did The Mandalorian. Now he did Tenet. There's a bunch of other things he is attached to. His music for this, you can say what you want about the sound mixing. I'm sure Nate will go into that. But it is a pulse-pounding experience that is challenging but entertaining at the same time. I don't know. I was pretty high on it, even with some glaring, glaring, glaring issues that I have with it that obviously we're going to go into it more. Nate, you're you're like the Mona Lisa. Like, we can never tell what you think about <laughs> things. It, like, I'm... last week we talked about the Wonder Woman thing where it was just kind of like you had to tell us what you thought at one moment. But, like, we haven't really got anything out of you about Tenet. So what do you think? Mm, I've been I've been just as tight-lipped on Tenet as the trailers were about what the hell the movie was about going into it, you know? Um, <laughs> all right, so let me just get on my Christopher Nolan soapbox here for a second. Uh, Memento, Inception, and The Dark Knight, those are, like, some of my favorite movies of their respective genres. Christopher Nolan is probably my favorite director. Other people might like get in there for the moment, but it always comes back to Big Daddy Nolan because he just does <laughs> things differently. He tries something new with every single film that he does, and I love his creativity. I think there's just nobody else in the business who consistently tries something new with every film. So... It broke my heart seeing Tenet because oh, no. the idea is there. This is a creative, complex, but creative movie dealing with the way that we see time in a different sense. So he does something different with time every movie. Inception has the dream layers. Dunkirk has like the different spans of time all happening at the same time. And then Memento's obviously famous for having both backwards and forwards plots. So what he settled on is a great idea, but it lacks all of the necessary and important exposition scenes that made something like Inception work. The movie does not do a good job of explaining the logic of its time twistingness, and a lot of the important exposition happens with big blaring sound effects from the landscape around them, or the music is blaring and you can't understand anything that's going on. Or in classic Nolan fashion, people are wearing masks or have thick accents and you can't understand them, especially with the theater Dolby sound going on in the background. So you combine all that. And as much as I wanted to like this movie, this is not a quality movie in my opinion. It is trying too much. It is too pretentious and it's not a good storytelling experience. This is a roller coaster ride where you wait three hours in line to go on a minute of thrills and you remember the good parts when you walk out of the theater, but you have no idea what just happened. <laughs> Everything was just a blur around you. Right. And I don't think the actors even really knew what happened either. So oh I don't God, think that's yeah. a, I don't think it's us being dumb, dumb boys or anything like that. I just mm -hmm. think it's <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> There's an interview with Robert Pattinson where he where he's like, there were points in filming where I firmly had no idea what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> so um, to, to kind of sum up my preliminary thoughts here um, as a quick aside, while we were in quarantine uh, in the beginning of, of COVID, I saw a movie that had been on my list for a long time called Primer. 
um, which is an infamously complex time travel movie. And in good conscience, I cannot recommend this movie because I needed to watch, like you did, Drew, 30-minute YouTube videos explaining it after the fact. Because it's a cool mental exercise to see if you can follow it and see if you enjoy it kind of thing. But it isn't a great story. This is that, but it's twice as long. (laughs) And... I think I think that's just not enough to give a good grade here. So despite being the Christopher Nolan fanboy, this one didn't do it for me. I hope he tries better to explain himself next time around. Yeah, I think this is going to be a review of dichotomies for me in contrast because the movie itself is weirdly non-committal to explaining things but also over-explains things. Like there's a line early in the movie and it's not a spoiler. One of the characters basically says – Don't try to think about it too much. And then the movie spends the next two hours and ten minutes assaulting your eyes and your ears with so much stuff that it's impossible not to think about it too much. You know what I mean? It's just Mm -hmm. like – it's such a contrast. And for me, it is frustrating in the same way that – I'm going to get a little pushback from Jake and this will invite him back into the conversation like a Rottweiler. It's the same thing as Interstellar for me where it just gets so up its own ass at points that it becomes hard to take it seriously as a a movie, but it for me it still worked as like an experience. Like the roller coaster analogy is really good because while I was watching it, I found a lot of visceral f- thrills, especially in the second act. But at the same time, it's hard to recommend it if it wasn't Christopher Nolan because if it, since it is Christopher Nolan, I do recommend that people see it just to f- close out the whole filmography. But if it was just some random movie, I'd be like, no, you'd be alienated by this. I do like Interstellar a lot, even though I agree the ending is a little head scratchy. But uh, agree, this is that on steroids. And uh, I like the concept. I really love what Nolan is going for. There are parts of this movie where I'm like, man, if he nailed this, this could have been thrown in there with the Inception, Dark Knight, like changing cinema kind of stuff. But he just, he didn't nail it. The effects, the ideas, the concepts are all really cool. And then his execution comes and you're just kind of like, bro, how is anybody supposed to understand the third act? <laughs> it, nope. it, it is how, incomprehensible, like, literally mm-hmm. incomprehensible. Like, and they literally have Aaron Taylor Johnson stand up in front of the audience to explain it. And I still go, no, I didn't. No, you're going to have to explain it again. <laughs> I, I would have raised my hand. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm that kid in the class. Can you go back a slide? I didn't yeah. catch that. Like, like my my experience watching all the action scenes through this movie is that I can understand where we were before, and I understand the result of the action scene. Like, right, what is supposed to drive the plot forward going on? I get that, but everything in the middle, I'm only half following, and. That's that's not good. <laughs> that that doesn't make for a good movie. Right. If I if I don't follow your most exciting part of your movie. I remember feeling like I finally was was getting it. And then something about the midpoint happened and I was just like, uh, nope, and now I'm confused again. Like <laughs> Yeah, no, I had that exact experience. And it was the final 30 minutes I was like, "Oh wait, maybe I don't understand any of this." Yeah, that that too. It's hard for us to judge the story because if we're having trouble understanding it, we can't really get into, like, plot holes because we don't even know what the plot is. <laughs> so you can't really discuss plot holes or, yeah. like, how A to B to C to D works. You know what I mean? Like, it's very difficult to do that when you don't have a lot of the context. 
And again, mm-hmm. having said all that, I still like this movie quite a bit. I like it's hard to explain it. Yeah. It almost like works on its own like goofy lunacy for me. I just it's like this is a fever <laughs> dream. What is this movie? I, I, I know what you mean. By the end, in its full, it's pretty much impossible to explain it all the way through. I could not I could not really do it. But at the same time, I've seen it twice and I I really thoroughly enjoyed myself twice. Even though I was confused, even though I had trouble following all of it for at least what he's going for and what what I did understand, I'm like, this is still really cool. Like, I still enjoyed it. <laughs> Interstellar at least has, like, really a really strong emotional backbone. Yeah. This, this one is, like, in and out with that. Like, John David Washington on purpose is a cryptic character. Uh, and I think yep. this is a good time <laughs> to kind of launch into what we think about the cast before we start going towards spoilers. True, we didn't even get there. Yeah, I, a Nolan review, I feel like, is so dominated by Nolan himself that it's hard to even get into the characters. Like, you wouldn't talk about Inception and start with Leo. You would get to him eventually. But John right. David Washington, he is unnamed on purpose, stoic on purpose. He's cool. Uh, I think the person who does the best work is Elizabeth Debicki to me because she gets the most to work with emotionally. Mm-hmm. Her and Kenneth Branagh. I really like Kenneth Branagh here too. He seems like he's having the time of his life. It's a very Yeah, he's over the top the entire yeah. time and it works. Yeah, I agree with the the emotional criticism here because like – and this is a valid criticism of Nolan films prior too where it's a lot about the hero needs to remain cold, calculated – um, and serious in order to succeed in his mission. Like Interstellar might be the only exception to that in his main movies. And even then, <laughs> he's still pretty calculating the whole time in order to to get it through. This movie, especially so. So John David Washington, I want to see a lot more of him because he is a lot of fun in this movie too. He does have his little his little quips in there that definitely definitely made me smile even. Well, I'm still scratching my head about the plot. <laughs> Robert Pattinson is surprisingly he's surprisingly plain in this movie. He he doesn't get a whole lot of range in his scenes because he actually ends up knowing more than even the protagonist in the story. Um so he's like very suave and cool but measured to himself yeah. for the entire run and that doesn't yeah. really show a lot of his range. He also disappears for long stretches too. Also true. Yeah. And I think he's got moments, but yeah, as a whole, when I walked out of the theater, I was like, huh, he's on the rise. And I was hoping to see him continue to be on the rise. And he kind of plateaued for a movie here, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'll have to wait for Batman, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We are tap dancing like Kevin Bacon and Footloose here. So <laughs> I, I think it's time to go and give our ratings and then go into a, a nice cryptic spoiler section that's going to be filled with a lot of what's and huh? Um <laughs> But before we get there, we rank movies based on the seat scale here on the Middle Seats Podcast. If we think a movie is perfect, we give it a royal throne. If we think a movie is great and has little to no flaws, we give it a plush recliner. If we think a movie is really solid but has some sizable flaws, we give it a wooden seat. The inverse of that, if we think a movie is pretty not great but has some good things in it, we give it a damp lawn chair. And we think a movie is awful, uh, we think it's a sleazy outhouse. And again, tough to do now. But the bag of popcorn moniker would indicate that we think you should see it on a big screen. I think I, – I guess it depends on what everybody's rating is going to be. But, <laughs> Nate, why don't you start with your rating here since you finished. But it's, I, the bag of popcorn thing feels like a guarantee even if it's – unless it's a sleazy outhouse, right? I mean, <laughs> um, Well, well let's something. start there then I suppose. Yeah, I was going to say um, I'm baiting him to give it a sleazy outhouse. <laughs> 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 no, in terms of seeing this in a the theater – 
I think you're honestly going to have a much better time seeing this one from home because you have the ability to pause and potentially put subtitles on. The sound mixing is usually a lot better on your home speakers in terms of being able to hear your dialogue. So I actually don't think this one is better in theaters. It might have been there for like the initial hype fest, but if you're trying to watch this and understand it and enjoy it, I think you're better off watching this one at home. Gasp. Let's get into let's get into the rating here. This may seem harsh, but I'm going to go damp lawn chair on this one. I think this movie definitely has some great moments, and we're going to talk about them. And it's definitely creative. It's ambitious. We'll never take that away from Big Daddy Nolan. He is an ambitious filmmaker. But this one doesn't just fail the landing for me. It failed all the flips to get to the, the cool stuff. It's too complicated. It is a summation of all of Nolan's biggest critiques where you can't understand the dialogue. It relies too heavily on exposition. There's not a whole lot of emotional weight to it. It takes all those dials and ramps them up to 10. And that's not what I wanted to see out of Christopher Nolan for this movie. I wanted to see something more like The Prestige or Inception, and it's not there. So I'm going to go harsh, but I did not like it. My heart's breaking for you. (laughs) <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I think most of Christopher Knoll's movies up to this point have been Royal Thrones or Plush Recliners. This is the first damp lawn chair for me. Hmm. So, hi, uh, Nate Lungarini over here, Jake from the from the Hollywood Reporter, um, a sub-branch from the middle seats. Uh, question for you. Is this your least favorite Christopher Nolan film? Yes. Wow. Unequivocally. Wow. Is it yours, Jake? Let's go to you. No, um... I'm not, I would have to be more familiar with Insomnia and The Following. I've only seen them once each. I w- So for me, I would actually argue, you're not going to understand this movie in its entirety the first time anyway. So I would see, for your first time, go see it on the big screen because it's got a great score. It looks gorgeous as all Nolan movies do. So I would say for that reason, see it on the big screen. But after that, I actually definitely agree with Nate. I, and I'm not a big subtitles guy. I do want to watch this with the subtitles on at some point, just because there are plot points where I was like, I don't know what he said, and it sounded important. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I would say bag of popcorn moniker originally, but like at the same time, I absolutely understand what Nate's saying because you're just you're not you're not going to understand everything. This time with the seat scale is probably the biggest issue I've had with the seat scale because the story is a glaring, glaring flaw in the movie. And yet I really do thoroughly enjoy it despite that. Even though I get confused, it's still a fun watch. And it's fun to watch the ambition. Nolan himself said this is his most ambitious project. So I'm going to go very low plush recliner just because it's still really fun. I still enjoy it. And it's at least fun to see what he's going for. It's certainly not boring. It's certainly not plain. It's not stupid. It's just confusing and very, very difficult to understand what's going on. But I still think it's a good watch. So I'm going to go low in plush recliner. Can I offer up a word that I think uh, surmises what you're trying to say? Because it's a word I have written down and bolded on my notes. It's inaccessible at points. That is a good one. Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. Jake, we're like the same brain right now because my like critique brain is saying like you cannot go any higher than wooden seat with this. Like you can't. Yeah. There's too much you've said negative. 
You know the meme with the the dragons and then like the stupid looking dragon on the end. Stupid looking <laughs> yeah. dragon is trying to eat the other two because I had so much fun watching it. Yeah, I was like looking up at it and just slowly like my another verbal meme. Michael Jackson eating popcorn, just looking straight up at it, just like what is this? <laughs> like this is unbelievable. But I was having so much fun watching it. It's the same thing. Had you told me a couple of years ago, could you give a plush recliner to a movie that you couldn't explain the plot? No. And here I am. <laughs> so, and so I think I'm going to yeah. join you. I think I'm going to join you. I'm going to give it a plush recliner because it uh, just Nate. <laughs> Nate's going to throw hands. Th- this is probably the most we've been apart since the Last Jedi, and I didn't think it was going to be this one. Don't say it. <laughs> I, I, well, I don't think because I'm not going to fight him too much. I'm so not looking forward to spoilers. It's not even funny because it's just going to be like us being like, uh, okay. Sure. I'm curious if I'm going to be able to explain it better than you guys. <laughs> and I'm the detractor here. <laughs> yeah. But I, I do want to, before we, we before we transition, if you, this is the last thing you hear from us tonight, I do think it's worth watching in terms of just an experience. It is a unique, one-of-a-kind movie. It's just a matter of it's got some significant glaring things that we need to talk about. So Christopher Nolan review, our first one ever here. A lot going on with us. It's like a soap opera here on the middle seats right now. Let's transition <laughs> into our spoiler section. <laughs> Whoa! Oh, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Excuse me, spoiler alert! So guys, my prep, there was not going to be any better prep than what I have, which is the entire plot of the movie from Wikipedia copied here <laughs> on my notes with, oh my the, with names of the characters bolded just so I, like, remember the names of the characters and the important players. Where the hell do we want to start? I, like, I... I, I actually feel like I got a decent decent handle on the start here. Do it, big okay. guy. Go for it. So, our our main character, titled the protagonist, can't get much more pretentious than that, but uh, the protagonist needs to save the world from a threat that can invert an object's entropy basically meaning that instead of walking forwards through time a object will reverse and walk backwards or move backwards and the the end goal is that this russian arms dealer has the ability to collect these nine pieces and blow up the world it's obviously much more complicated than that there's armageddon kind of stuff going on but basically right Going back in time, he's able to collect nine things and blow up the world. And that is what the protagonist is trying to stop. But he's but he's not trying to blow up the world, right? I think he's trying to help people in the future and hide yeah. the stuff for them so that they can mm. blow up the world. Right? Yes. <laughs> you were just you were just simplifying it for the audience, right? That's I'm very much simplifying okay. it. Okay, okay, okay. I just want to make sure I understood it. <laughs> sure, sure. And this is part of the issue, is that even though that's a fairly straightforward premise nolan has a whole bunch of side things to get from a to b that just make it all the more confusing the first hour and a half of this movie revolves around the protagonist trying to break into essentially a vault in an airliner to get a picture that is being used to blackmail the Russian arms dealer's wife. Yeah, yes. And <laughs> <laughs> it's like a Mad Lib sentence. <laughs> yeah, I know. I had to parse through every word to make sure I was saying the right one. My brain is, <laughs> is already fried. Um, and that's the first hour 15 right there. And 
and you find out after the fact that the protagonist was also trying to find weapons and more information while he was doing all this, but he didn't tell uh, the audience up until after the mission is done. And we haven't really delved into all of the the reverse action scenes at this point, you know? At the hour 25 mark, this is the first time we go through a turnstile machine where you start seeing a character move backwards through time. And that in its own is a very cool idea. The issue is that Christopher Nolan takes this concept, very loosely tells you about it, instead of just like a quick there and back kind of situation, he has the entire movie almost playing out in reverse for a full week of movie time to go to a separate turnstile machine to start moving in forward time again. And they do this several times throughout yeah. this movie, this weird S shape of time that makes everything a lot more complicated. Like the Russian guy is going back in time to after a heist is done in order to know how the heist goes and then execute the heist. It's stuff like that that is impossible to follow as you're watching it the two times you watch the scene. Yeah, I can feel you go about to go off the road explaining it. Yeah. <laughs> In terms of those first 90 minutes, it reminded me a lot of the structure of a video game. Very questy, very like you need to go talk to this person and you need to break into mm -hmm. this to go talk to this person and gain the trust of this person. You have to go visit Michael Caine who will insult your suit and then you have to go buy a new suit. And it's like yep. – it's just, it's overwhelming, and I, I did think once it hit the rhythm of the inversion stuff, and I thought the scene on the highway where they are pulling off the heist to get the algorithm, but that the inverted Kenneth Branagh is there, and then John David Washington goes back in time, and <laughs> inverse in time, and starts to happen, and <laughs> create chaos. I thought that stuff was really cool. Uh, I thought Ludwig Gorenson's score in those moments was great. But it's missing the scene from Inception where Leonardo DiCaprio takes Ellen Page into his dream and explains, this is this, this is that, this yep. is this. You would think that John David Washington's character would be that entry point and they like sort of do it when uh, Clemens, Clemens Posey, I believe is her name, she plays the like member of Tenet who teaches him about inversion in the bolts at the beginning. You, In theory, mm -hmm. that's the scene. That's the scene where you learn what's going on. And they also don't explain it well enough. They don't explain it well enough. She literally says don't something like, don't try to yep. understand it. And it was that moment that I was like, oh, shit. Oh, no. Mm. <laughs> if you're already telling me don't try to understand it, this is going to be complicated. Yeah. And uh, I think Inception really is the roadmap for what this movie should have been. Because there's a lot of characters in Inception. And each one has a little extra piece of exposition to say what their role is in the dream heist, yeah, right? Yeah, so like Arthur's the architect and then there's the fixer mm -hmm. and yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so each of them explains kind of like what they do. That's not how this movie plays it at all. All the supporting characters that we meet for the first 45 minutes, especially I think the the Indian arms dealer, the woman. Yeah, Priya Singh. Yep. She has a lot of really important dialogue. She's the one who first explains what the turnstile machine is. But instead of Inception, where like they cut to a picture of the machine that they use to induce sleep, that kind of stuff. She just talks about it and they move on. And you don't know that that's what the machine is when you first get there at the end of the first driving sequence. And OK, they do the turnstile thing and they're like, OK, I think I understand how this works, um, but 
it goes off the rails. I think introducing Michael Caine was a mistake because he adds nothing. Yeah. I think the whole portrait subplot for the first bit is really confusing because it adds basically nothing except character motivation. Right. And we didn't need that. We needed exposition, not motivation. To even add to that, how many turnstiles are there? Where are they? They're just kind of there as needed. And I'm like, how many exist? And like, how can you access Mm -hmm. them? Like, I don't. I think there's four in the movie. Three that we see. <laughs> yeah, they like even that to me. I was like, what, like, what are these things, and where are they, and who can use them? If they're the Russian guys, how come these people can also? I have so many questions mm-hmm. just about the turnstiles alone. And now we're moving yeah. forward. Like, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I guess what's next? <laughs> like, what do you want? <laughs> what do you want to talk about next? Uh, I, mm-hmm. I think Robert Pattinson and John David Washington's relationship is important. Uh, and I think that's one of the rare moments where I think the movie does a good job of setting up the circular nature of time and time travel and kind of planting the seeds of the relationship between the two of them. Because on a second watch, it's very clear that Robert Pattinson knows John David Washington's character pretty intimately, just by the way he knows his coke order, he knows yep. like his different modes. So they they set that up well. They don't really do a lot with it until the very last moment of the movie, but it, it's a yep. nice. It, it's a. It's the example of a twist. Do you guys buy the theory that Pattinson is the child of Debicki and Brana's characters? Whoa, I hadn't heard that theory. Oh really? I heard that. That seems like something that Nolan would stick in there just as a. Let's keep the audience talking about this. Same way with the top and Inception. The yeah. only hint that I I heard of it was so the kid's name is Max, which is short for Maximilian. The last yeah. four letters of Maximilian inverted are Neil, which is Robert Pattinson's it's, character. It's so, oh my God, wow. so big brain. <laughs> Other than that, there is like no hint that that could be even be true. And, and mm. Does it even really matter? Like, it, no, <laughs> it, I, it doesn't. I all. don't know. Does it? Like, somewhere yeah. Christopher Nolan is sitting on a on a throne laughing at us for not getting it. But yeah. <laughs> I think we should talk about the action because I think this is the one part that we definitely agree with. The spectacle is amazing Incredible. to watch. Oh, yeah. yeah this, this movie will be nominated for Best Cinematography at the minimum. It's uh, Hoyt Van Hoytma who, oh, it did, is. Yep, who did Dunkirk and I might have done Interstellar. Yep, he did Interstellar as well. Incredible work because the visuals of this are stunning and the way that it shows how time is moving in reverse is so cool, like how the water moves backwards and how it all makes sense laterally in the frame. Just just great stuff. Yeah, the, the car chase scene, logistics aside, is really cool to look at. I actually came away from the movie really happy with the, the fight scene, especially the second time around where the protagonist is fighting himself. Yeah, um, agreed. Reversed. And just because the pacing of that fight scene makes sense from both perspectives. Yeah, I both thought that too. characters are struggling with their foe at the beginning of the fight because they're just not used to how the other one is moving yet. Because from their perspective, both fights are happening in reverse. Um, but they're able to overpower them by the end. And just the way that that kind of um, standard fight scene, having reverse chronological order there, actually increasing the tension and the character development of the scene is really, really cool. Yeah, no, I agree. The the second time around when I was watching it, I was like, I actually think all of this adds up and makes sense. 
And that's really, really cool that he can accomplish something like that. Yeah. It makes it frustrating that you don't know right on impact that it does indeed make sense. Yeah. And I think that's a great pivot to the third act, which we alluded to earlier. Yeah. This is the one that needs a lot of talking. The reason that the fight scene makes sense is because it's two objects that you need to follow with your eyes. One character moving forward, one character moving backward, and how they're clashing in between. The third act involves two teams in identical colored suits, like with like a red armband and a blue armband, right? Yeah. Fighting generic bad guys in a desert environment where explosions and moving cars are happening the entire time. I, I do not understand how anybody from the audience in the theater seat to the editor putting the scene together could follow the action of that. It was legitimately giving me a migraine at points. Mm-hmm. They don't even do a great job of setting up what the objective is supposed to be. Like, I knew it had something to do with the algorithms, which, by the way, that algorithm looks really stupid in my opinion. It, <laughs> like, it looks like a, it looks like a metal shish kebab, like... <laughs> Basically, yeah. What, what a weird, what a weird device for somebody who doesn't like MacGuffins and stuff like that to have that as your central thing. From what I gather, they were trying to steal the algorithm before Kenneth Branagh's people could implode the ground and bury it for the people in the future, so that the people in the future could ruin our lives. But then Kenneth Branagh went back in time uh, to like his boat to commit suicide, so he doesn't have to experience any of this, right? Like, does that sound? Some, it's something correct. like that. It, it's something <laughs> like one team, one team is moving forward to get it, while the other team is trying to stop, is going back to try and stop it from from exploding and being lost in time, and they have to do it simultaneously. And then something happens. Robert Pattinson has to go inverted <laughs> again to pick a lock, and like all of a sudden, yeah, there's yeah. four different Robert Pattinsons moving around. Like yeah, there's the... there's three at any time. I think right. If you think about it, because there's something like that current and there's forward and there's backward. I, I don't know. <laughs> that That's the thing. And like and he just expects us to follow this. <laughs> yeah. The, the military scene at the beginning tries to explain exactly what happens. I think the red team is the one moving forward in time and they're yeah, supposed so. to locate the object um, and fail on purpose. So the blue team has the information to go back in time after the fact and get the thing before the mistake is made yeah, and the building like explodes. And they still want the explosion to happen. They just don't want the algorithm to be there. Exactly, yeah. And the entire, the entire setup for this incredibly complex action scene is solely for one shot of a building exploding and unexploding on the top and bottom halves. Like, <laughs> right? Do we remember this moment? Yeah, yeah. It's the iconic shot of this movie, I think, of just the building simultaneously exploding and imploding. And it looks really freaking cool. Yeah. But I couldn't tell you how the hell we got there. <laughs> no, especially the first time I watched this movie, so so for me, I thought I had a grasp on it finally until the protagonist goes back in time to try and save uh, Elizabeth Debicki. And then I was like, wait, now I'm a little confused again. I think I'm starting to get it. And then the third act happened. I was pretty much like, I'm going to give up and read afterward. Like, I don't I'm not going to get this right now. <laughs> I think I was good until we got to that final set piece. And then that final set piece, everything I thought I understood went out the window because now this whole tenant team was involved and, like, why weren't they involved before? And I understand the whole, like, manipulation and not interfering with the past. And here's the thing. 
going broadly and talking about this movie in general, we as a trio are not adverse to directors not treating the audience like idiots. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. One of Nate's favorite movies is Blade Runner 2049. Uh, Memento is another one of Nate's favorite movies. It's uh, Those are all some of my favorite movies, and Jake likes smart things too. When... <laughs> <laughs> most backhanded compliment I've ever heard. <laughs> uh, anyway, but it's, it's not a matter of us not wanting it to be a smart intellectual movie. It's a matter of it's like we do need a little hand-holding, though, because you can't just walk into a test and not have studied and be expected to know the answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've said this earlier, but to to reiterate, the sound mixing, and Nolan came out and was, like, surprised that people had an issue, and I was like, yeah, dude, there's a scene where... People are, are on a on a boat, which has a loud engine, which has people marching back and forth with wind blowing, mm-hmm. with a score, while they're wearing masks, talking in an accent. I'm like, that's six different things hiding the dialogue. Yeah. Like, I don't like, know what's happening. And like, how is he surprised at this point? This has been a decades long problem. Yeah, yeah. And he's been called out on it before. I've been calling out on him since Dark Knight Rises. Bane was hard to understand. Yeah. And yeah. it's gotten worse with Dunkirk. Well, there was there was like no dialogue in Dunkirk, so it was <laughs> fine. Exactly. <laughs> and, and it's a simple story. This is complex stuff going on here. Yeah. Really, really important dialogue that was not heard by audiences. And even on the second time around with the power of the pause button. I had trouble still, <laughs> and I shouldn't be having trouble listening to your movie, dude. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with that. We should. That's a point of dialogue. We need to hear it. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. yes, yeah. To put a bow on that, <laughs> to put a bow <laughs> on Tenet's ending. Of course, they succeed. We find out Robert Pattinson is going to go back to unlock that gate and then take the bullet. Uh, and we find out that John David Washington's protagonist is the one who creates Tenet in the future. Uh, which is a which is a reveal that I feel like you could figure out if you had any context to it. You know what I mean? It's kind of like a, it's something you you could have predicted if there was any kind of hint at it earlier. It's an interesting note for the movie to end on, and then it ends on a f- phenomenal Travis Scott song in the in the credits, which I was like, wow, this is this is crazy that Travis Scott yeah. and Christopher Nolan are collaborating. Uh, <laughs> what a world. <laughs> it, in terms of the ending, I think it's more of a factor of like, do you care? <laughs> yeah. I mean. Do you care that the protagonist started Tenet? No, I, I wanted to care about the the movie and the events that took place. I, I think Inception, again, I'll, I'll keep harkening back to it, is such a great example because even though the movie is complex, the motives for the character are really simple. Cobb wants to see his kids again. Yeah. You know, if I do the job, I get to see my kids again. This movie's motivation is if I do all these things and try to figure out how time works, then I get to save the world. That's not an emotionally investing arc. It's not simple to understand. We can all relate to that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Another emotional one that fell a little bit for me was the moment where we realize Robert Pattinson has known the protagonist all along. The, he, you know, he's, he starts to get emotional and he was like, what's going to happen to you and this and that? And he starts to get emotional. I feel like it's supposed to be an emotional point for the audience. But for the audience, we're like, I'm still trying to process what exactly happened. And I didn't know you guys, he's been gone for half the movie. I don't know what the action scene was last. Like, this is not an emotional moment for me anymore. This is just an, oh, I guess things do come full circle. Again, the dialogue is like intentionally cryptic and poetic. And it's like, no, sometimes you just need to say things. 
Like just straight <laughs> up. T- please just straight up tell us. Please what's going on. tell me what's happening. <laughs> Jake, you and I. This is the most negative plus recliner review in middle seats history. It's not even close. Yeah. Um, I I will say that what did work for me emotionally was Elizabeth Debicki, and I kind of yeah. hinted at that in the non-spoiler section. She kind of has the cop thing. Uh, that Nate was talking about. She has a connection to a kid who I don't know if we ever see the kid's face. I like can't remember. We do. Okay, I think but do. like her her push and pull with Kenneth Branagh, it was I found that pretty compelling because I think Elizabeth Debicki is very talented. Um, and I found a lot of what they did with her character interesting, especially with how her thing comes full circle. I, I had a feeling that the woman diving off of the boat would be either somebody adjacent to her or her in general. Uh, so I thought mm-hmm. the way that they that was the part of the finale that I understood and actually was gripped in and, and found yeah, same. intense. I like the big stuff. I wasn't really all that into, but those scenes where she's on the boat with him, I actually found pretty compelling. Yeah, I actually agree. I, I liked and understood what was going on with her character. She's not the main character, but she's the most interesting character. And she's interesting because you understand her emotional motivations for the plot, as opposed yeah. to the protagonist and uh, Robert Pattinson's character. And it's a shame because I think if I was going to try to redo this movie, I would either cut her out of the movie because her storyline just makes everything so much more complicated, or I would bring the protagonist to her level where maybe John David Washington just is a guy who figured this girl needed help and then went on a wacky time adventure and get rid of the military stuff. Um, but you got to pick one. Christopher Nolan was splitting attention between two different threads that one is compelling and one is not. Yeah. I'm also I also had a sigh of relief when uh, they did save her through time because Christopher Nolan gets a lot of flack for uh, killing off major female characters. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, he, he went out of his way to make sure that she survived. Uh, they had a, they did a whole time heist for it. So I appreciated that. All right, guys. Are you guys ready to say good night and good luck to Tenant? Yes, sir. Yeah, I think we've covered the story the best that we can, so. <laughs> All right. Cover anything else you want in your final thoughts. Jake, let's start with you. Yeah, that's just it. Like, you know, like we've been trying to do, uh, we've been trying our best to exactly explain and say what we liked and didn't like about the plot, and it's still difficult. It's a difficult movie to fully dive into when you don't even sure that you fully understand it. But it's still, it's still such an interesting movie. It's extremely ambitious. It's a wild ride. And I do think it's it's ultimately enjoyable. I'm not sure that it doesn't make sense as much as it is just complicated, overly complicated. So that's kind of how I feel about it. I still like it. It's certainly a spectacle. I think it's worth watching whether you're going to like it or not. It's it's an interesting movie. And I don't know. I'm hoping for better uh, for Nolan in the future. I was always wondering when he would kind of, if he would ever hit his wall as you know, a, a director who's just pretty much nailed every movie he's ever done. Um, and I think we finally saw where his limits are and hopefully he'll come back better. The last few months have not been very kind to him in terms of backlash because <laughs> every, a lot of people have a lot of the problems that we do and Nate obviously does. So Nate, why don't you uh, host your little mini intervention for Daddy Nolan right now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Chris, I love you. But you gotta <laughs> take criticism too, man. You are not perfect. Fix your sound design. You have to be able to hear your characters. I know the score is cool. I know the explosions are cool. But you gotta let me hear your actors talk, especially if they're telling me something important. Tenet was a very novel take on time manipulation. I thought the trailers were really, really cool of just showing 
one item acting differently than all the other things happening in a frame and seeing how cool that was, this had potential to be there, but it's too overly complicated for its own good. It tries too much. It tries to be too prestigious and too out there. And at the end of the day, I just wanted to care about the characters and the story and to follow what's going on. Yeah, this is a little bit of a dark spot in Christopher Nolan's career. I really hope that he listens to people after this one and doesn't double down and continue to make confusing blockbusters that look cool but are ultimately kind of hollow. It's it's tough for me to say it's a dark point considering how much I love Dunkirk, but at specifically this Tenet era, yes, I would agree with that for sure. Uh, I do want to make it clear I am not being a Nolan shill when I give it a plush recliner. I'm not just giving him the plush recliner and handing it over even though I have issues with the movie. I genuinely think that Tenant is a compelling experience and something that everybody needs to at least venture a watch for. I saw it in September, and then I saw it again in October, and I haven't stopped thinking about it really since. We did a little prep before the show, but I didn't have to do too much prep because the main elements and the questions I have are still questions that were present in my mind. Like, the the movie hasn't faded for me so many months later. And I think that memorability and that unforgettability does speak a lot to the movie's power and impact as a visceral experience. Like, I keep using that phrase, but I think it's pretty apt because I can't defend it as a fully well-rounded movie. I do think it's one of his weaker efforts. I think I would probably only put it above Insomnia in terms of his movies. Uh, And it's got a pretty good gap from Insomnia. I I just think overall there is a lot of dynamic technical stuff going on that hasn't been attempted before. It's this big bombastic movie. The acting is mostly pretty good. I do think people need to watch it. Uh, I just think that the conversation about the movie is nearly as compelling as the movie itself, which I kind of wish wasn't the case. Does that make sense? Probably no, yeah, makes sure. about as much sense as the rest of this f-ing spoiler section. So <laughs> it's funny. It, this is like the the greatest failed experiment ever. <laughs> mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong, I'm very glad that Christopher Nolan didn't sacrifice his creativity to make this movie. He definitely yeah. tried something new. It didn't work, but he definitely tried it, and I will give him props for doing that. And I'll give any filmmaker props Absolutely. for trying something different in cinema. Yeah. We'll see you in a few years, Christopher Nolan. We'll, we'll exactly. be there opening night for whatever you do. Hopefully it's in theaters. Yeah. Uh, that'll do it for our review of Tenet and for this episode of the Middle Seas Podcast. Before we go, Nate Lungarini, where can they find us on the internet? Alrighty, Here's how you can get in touch with us. Please like, comment, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Middle Seats. You can also listen to us on the go on all your podcast platforms, including iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. For questions, comments, and updates on the show, keep an eye on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter all at the middle seats. And if you like what you hear and you want to see more content, let us know and spread the word. We can go a number of directions in the next couple of weeks in terms of what we review and what we discuss on the middle seats podcast. Uh, I know at some point we would like to get to soul. Uh, so that'll probably be coming up uh, within the next few weeks or so. We've got some movies that we could talk about from 2021. We can got some Oscar contenders for 2020. We're still charting a path. We're glad you're with us on this journey. That'll do it. For Jake Hensler and Nate Lungarini, I'm Andrew Oje. I wish I could say keep that seat warm, everyone. We will be back soon, backwards, but that was a disaster at the beginning. So we'll see you guys later. <laughs>
Ich nicht aus vom Stehort, es ist mies, es ist